Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Okay, Tracy and listeners, I sort of have to apologize because I did not mean to do two ancient cities as topics so close together. Nah, I think it's fine. (laughs) We recently did Ephesus, and so I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, we've talked about before how we try to cycle through things so we're not doing the same topic over and over. And I know I have definitely been guilty of doing a lot of biographies lately. So this time I was like, okay, we did an ancient city. I want to do a history mystery this time around. And that actually led me to today's topic, which it turns out is another ancient city. Uh, this city has a unique identity in that in some ways it kind of lacks identity. That is the mystery of it. We don't know much about the people who lived there because most of the ideas of the cultural identity come from analysis of the ruins of the city itself. And there are some gaps there about what the people that lived there might have been like. Uh, So we are talking today about Mohenjo-Daro. We've had some other ancient cities that have a, a similar lack of knowledge about what the people who lived there or didn't live there were like. Like, I remember when we talked about Poverty Point, there was a a lot of debate about how exactly that space was used. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, there is just sort of a, 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 a lot that we're gleaning from the site itself. Right, which, and we'll talk about it more, but that has led to some very different interpretations of the the ruins and the artifacts that have been found there. So it's kind of an interesting examination of how, it makes me think a lot about how our current culture will be misinterpreted by the archaeologists of the future, presumably from space. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Mahenjo-Daro is in the Indus River Valley in the Sindh province of present-day southern Pakistan. It sits about two miles or three kilometers away from the Indus River, and the city was built around 2500 BCE, and so that means its construction was happening at the same time as the Great Pyramids of Egypt. The size, organization, and evidence of an industry of regulated trade have all led archaeologists to believe that Mohenjo-Daro was one of the most important cities of the Indus Valley civilization, also called the Harappan Civilization. The other ancient Indus Valley city you may have heard about is Harappa, which is in the Punjab province of Pakistan. Mahenjo-Daro is 400 miles, that's about 640 kilometers, southeast of Harappa. And it's unclear whether Mahenjo-Daro and Harappa were active at the same time or whether one came before the other. But Mahenjo-Daro is one of the first known urban centers, and it is the largest and best preserved of the ancient Indus Valley civilization cities. The name Mohenjo-Daro, you'll sometimes see written out a number of different ways that vary in how they use spacing and hyphenation. Sometimes it's Mohenjo-Daro with a hyphen. Sometimes it's all together as one word. It means mound of the dead, but that is, of course, not the name that the city was called when it was inhabited. Uh, That's the name that was given to it by archaeologists, and we really don't know what people living there called it while they were living there. One of the things that's unique to Mahenjo-Daro is its lack of governmental structures. There is a marketplace, and there are trading spaces, and there are public spaces, but there are no palaces. There is no clear evidence of any sort of hierarchical leadership structure. Based on its well-organized and thoughtful layout and design, Mohenjo-Daro may have been a seat of power, but we still 
can't quite figure out exactly with any certainty how it was governed. The city covers 240 hectares, which is nearly 600 acres. So that makes it about five times the size of the Vatican. Mohenjo-Daro has two districts, which have been named the Citadel and the Lower Town. And again, these are names that archaeologists have uh, labeled them with. The tallest of the Mohenjo-Daro mounds is the home of the Citadel. The Great Bath is perhaps the most impressive structure of the Citadel section of the city. It is also probably the most famous part of the city. This bath is massive. It is 39 feet, that's 12 meters, by 23 feet, that's 7 meters, and the depth of the pool is 8 feet, which is 2.5 meters. The bath was constructed with bricks that were mortared with gypsum, and then to make it watertight, the whole thing was sealed with bitumen. To enter and exit, there were stairs for bathers on either end of the bath. This pool at Mohenjo-Daro predated Roman baths by about 2,400 years, but it was just as impressive as those later structures. A nearby well supplied the bath with water, and water was discarded from the bath via a corbel drain. Because of its size and location in the citadel section of the city, it is believed that the Great Bath was used for group bathing, possibly as part of rituals. And this, combined with the other advanced bathroom facilities and draining systems of the city, have led to the conclusion that cleanliness was deeply important to the culture of the city. While the city had numerous gathering places, it lacked temples or other obviously religious structures. And the Great Bath has sometimes been suggested as a possible temple, but there's also a stupa, which is a Buddhist structure, and that's shaped like a dome. But the stupa at Mohenjo-Daro was built long after the city was abandoned. It's estimated that this structure was added to the Citadel Mound as late as the year 200. Yeah, we'll talk about the timeline of when the city uh, was no longer active, but that is long after it. So basically, like, new structures were built on top of ruins, and that is how that stupa stands so high. Uh, The so-called lower town of Mohenjo-Daro is based on a grid system, just like any modern city, really. It's sectioned off into blocks with barriers constructed from baked mud bricks, as well as mud bricks that are made uh, in the non-baked style, which is like mud and straw. And then mud was also applied to the brick walls to seal them and minimize erosion. The lower town section of the city may have supported as many as 20,000 to 40,000 residents. It appears that the city enjoyed a certain level of egalitarian wealth. Ivory, gold, and semi-precious stones have been found all throughout Mohenjo-Daro. Additionally, most of the homes seem to have had the same basic level of amenities. Just about every house had a toilet and a bath that were connected to the city's drainage system. There are also stairs in most of the homes, suggesting either a second story or a terrace roof. Yeah, uh, there are very few kind of what we would consider indicators of like a lower class residence area. Uh, and some of those, again, are in those those areas that are built on top of other ruins. So it does seem, again, very egalitarian. Uh, and there are also some theories that that second story or terraced roof may have been part of uh, an effort to avoid flooding. The record of art in Mohenjo-Daro is a little bit sparse. Any decorative elements in the architecture are long gone, and there isn't a whole lot of sculpture to indicate the values of the people of the city in terms of their art. There are a few examples, some of which we're going to talk about in just a bit, but for the most part, it has been small pieces like jewelry or little, you know, bits of sculpture that have survived. 
Mohenjo-daro collapsed as a center of civilization about 600 years into its life, sometime around 1900 BCE. But the cause of that collapse is unknown. A shift in the Indus River might have been to blame because it would have really impacted the vitality of a city that was depending on river-transported trade. There have also been theories that the city flooded due to the river shifting and that some of the technology that the city used to control water flow actually caused standing water in the city streets for a prolonged period of time. But again, while there is evidence of some flood damage, this is still speculative. We just don't have enough hard evidence. And we do know that the entire Indus River civilization experienced a steep decline around that uh, sort of landmark year of 1900 BCE. Coming up, we will talk about the excavation that uncovered Mohenjo-daro after thousands of years. Uh, Shifting sands and soil had covered the site during that time. But first, we will have a little sponsor break. As we mentioned before we went to break, over time, Mohenjo-daro was covered with soil. And it wasn't until the early 1920s that the city was rediscovered. And at this time, the city was first identified among a series of mounds, again, in the Indus River Valley. The mounds were mostly covering the city, and really the citadel was the part that was most apparent. And it wasn't until 1922, as those mounds started to be excavated, that the significance and massiveness of this find was truly identified. In the 1920s, multiple excavations were conducted on Mohenjo-daro. They were headed by the Archaeological Survey of India, and they were conducted by both British and Indian archaeologists. Excavations continued up until the 1960s, when all the excavations were shut down due to concern over the structures being damaged. The weather was a factor. The fact that they had been uncovered also exposed them to the elements more. There have been approved excavations since that time, Those have been conducted under careful scrutiny and have used non-invasive techniques. The Pakistani Antiquities Act 1975 put some protections in place, making it illegal to steal from or deface protected antiquities, which included Mohenjo-daro. And the city actually became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1980. So throughout the many excavations that have gone on at Mohenjo-daro, thousands of small artifacts have been recovered from the ruins, And we're going to talk about two of the most famous ones and some ongoing examination and theorizing about what they mean and their origins and value. So the dancing girl is probably the most important, certainly the most well-known artifact of those collected at the Mohenjo-daro site. It's a small bronze figure. It's about 10 and a half inches tall. That's 26.7 centimeters. And it depicts a woman who is nude, save her jewelry. And the figure has what appears to be curly hair pulled back and a necklace, which looks almost like a shell on a chain or a cord. On her right arm, which is quite long and lithe, are two bracelets. One sits just above the elbow and one at the wrist. And in contrast, the left arm of the figure is covered in what look like bangles from just below the shoulder all the way down to the wrist. And if you count those little nubs that indicate bangles, there are 25 of them in all. Whether the dancing girl depicts someone native to the Indus Valley or an African woman has been part of the debate about the piece. There are indications that there there may have been trade going on between Africa and the Indus Valley inhabitants. A lot of times when there was trade going on, there were also people (laughs) from the different places living there. 
But the identity of the dancing girl's inspirational woman is still an issue that people just don't agree on. There has been a case made that her features, including her long limbs, more resemble an African woman. But her her adornments and her hairstyle echo more of Indian women throughout history. In 2016, a controversial paper was published uh, in Itihas, which is the Hindi Journal of the Indian Council of Historical Research. And that paper, authored by Thakur Prasad Verma, claims that the dancing girl is a representation of the Hindu goddess Parvati, the goddess of love, fertility, and strength. And that is the first time that that idea has been floated. And it garnered a lot of press, but it also got a lot of criticism. The primary driver for his conclusion is that Shiva is also represented in some pieces found at Mohenjo-Daro, and that if images of Shiva are present, it only makes sense for his wife Parvati to also appear. But even that assertion that those other images are Shiva has been contested. But that's not the only recent controversy surrounding the dancing girl. The other is one of ownership. In 2016, Pakistani lawyer Javed Iqbal Jaffrey filed a motion insisting that the dancing girl should be returned to Pakistan's Lahore Museum. And according to this motion, the statue was on loan to the National Arts Council of India and was never returned to Pakistan. It's currently in the collection of the National Museum in New Delhi. But the counter story is that the dancing girl was moved before British India was partitioned into India and Pakistan in the 1950s. The partitioning is its own complicated story. Indeed. <laughs> um, but that that assertion means that Pakistan has no right to make the demand for its return. There's not really been a lot of movement in uh, in this since that motion was originally filed. Yeah, if there has, it really hasn't been published anywhere that I could locate. The Dancing Girl was discovered in 1926 by Indian archaeologist D.R. Sani. And since then, her meaning in terms of religious significance has been debated, and that discussion continues to present day. Most statue artifacts recovered from Mohenjo-Daro are terracotta, and a handful are carved stone. But this bronze figure is a rarity. She's even more rare because while there are other cast metal pieces in the area, they tend to be tools and decorative adornments. So a cast sculpture stands out as significant. To create any cast metal object, the Harappans would carve it in wax and then place wet clay around the carving to dry and create a mold. And then they would heat the mold to melt the wax and pour it out through carefully drilled holes This would leave a negative mold, which would then be cast with an alloy. And this was a one-time-use mold. It would have to be broken to reveal the final piece. Another important artifact from the city is a stone sculpture, which was named the Priest King by archaeologists, even though there is nothing to indicate that he was either of those things. And this is a partial piece. It is just the upper portion of the torso and one broken arm. And the head is very stylized, featuring a face that is proportionally large for the head and a beard sculpted with deep vertical lines to create a representation of hair texture. His hair on his head is slicked back and an ornamental headband encircles his head and then has a a tiny circle at the forehead like an ornamental piece. Over one of the figure's shoulders, there's a cloth drape and it's sculpted with ornamental circle and trefoil motifs. The top of the head appears to have been sliced flat and the flat area is uncarved with no detail. So people have speculated that there may have been a headdress piece that sat on top of it. 
Similar, larger sculptures have a bun that's on top of the head. So there have also been theories that a similar hairstyle might have been what was intended to sit on this flat portion of the head. It's also possible that the back of the head was intact initially and somehow it was sheared off by accident. Yeah, there are also some holes drilled into the uh, the head on the sides that people have suggested might be to place like a necklace or some other type of like neck adornment. But I read one interesting analysis that posited that it was actually, those holes were actually ways that whatever that ornamental piece that sat on top was hooked to the head so it would stay secure. It's an interesting piece. Like I said, not everybody agrees <laughs> on what, what any of these things are uh, and what their their various details are about. The priest king, as I mentioned, uh, is broken off just at the waist or just above the waist. So the intact section is just a little less than seven inches at 17.7 centimeters tall. And he is part of the collection of the National Museum of Pakistan at Karachi. We're about to get into an interesting part of the modern mythology around the Mohenjo-Daro site, but first we will pause for another quick word from sponsors. We have certainly uh, mentioned this already in this podcast, but in the case of a site like this one where archaeologists and researchers find themselves having to guess at the history of a civilization and culture— it is pretty natural for competing theories to emerge. As a side note, if you're wondering whether a system of writing might help figure out the many issues of confusion over Mohenjo-Dara's history, the Harappan civilization did have one, we think. Uh, There are symbols on various excavated artifacts that do look like they might represent a language, but this Indus script, or Harappan script as it's known, has not ever been deciphered. Yeah, there is, again, debate over whether or not that's actually what it is, even if it is a language. So the massacre myth of Mohenjo-Daro is one that began in its early excavations, and it persists to this day. It's kind of sensational, so people like to keep it going. In the 1930s, it was widely publicized that something terrible had happened at Mohenjo-Daro because a number of skeletal remains were found that appeared to have died gruesomely. The narrative put forth in the first half of the 20th century was that the city of Mohenjo-Daro was wiped out by Indo-Aryan invaders. There's not really evidence to support that idea. For one thing, all of the bodies found during the early excavations were in the lower city, not in the citadel. And it seems like if people were running for cover or help, they would have run to the citadel, not into the lower city for protection. There were no bodies at all found in the citadel, No weapons of any kind have been found to indicate that there was any sort of conflict. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, (laughs) grow up almost anywhere in the United States, like, there are people always finding things like arrowheads. And, like, they're just, if there is a battle, stuff gets dropped. That's how it goes. Nothing of that kind (laughs) has been found in Mohenjo-Daro. Uh, And there is also a high likelihood that not all of these remains are from the same time. And that was actually debated even among the archaeologists who first uncovered these remains. As you recall, we mentioned earlier that the city's stupa was built long after the Harappan civilization is believed to have ended. So there were people making use of the city even after it was largely abandoned. And all of those time periods may be coming into play here. Later theories about the bodies that diverged from the idea of an attack or a massacre 
put forth the idea that the few people who remained after most of the city was empty may have been caught in a flood or a drought that was brought on by the shifting of the Indus River or some kind of pestilence. So later theories about these bodies that diverged from the idea of an attack or a massacre put forth the idea that the few people who remained after most of the city was empty might have been caught up in some kind of flood or drought that was brought about by the shifting of the Indus River, or maybe some kind of pestilence. It's also possible that a series of floods overtook the city over a prolonged period of decline. There's a high likelihood that not all of the remains are even from the same period, so it's also likely that there's no one cause of death for all of these bodies. Yeah, sometimes you'll see on kind of sensational sites the secrets of the massacre at Mohenjo-Daro, and they kind of suggest that there's some cover-up of something nefarious, but really it's it's just kind of one of those cases where it's probably not as dramatic as we maybe think. In a 1964 article titled The Mythical Massacre at Mohenjo-Daro, archaeologist George F. Dales wrote, quote, the enemy of the Harappans was nature, aided and abetted by the Harappans themselves, who accelerated the spoliation of the landscapes through improper irrigation practices and by denuding the watersheds through overgrazing and deforestation is less glamorous and exciting than a massacre, (laughs) but also makes a lot more sense given the evidence we have. So there probably wasn't any sort of mass attack on Mohenjo-Daro. In the present day, though, the site is in real danger, and the threat once again comes from the elements. Salt in the groundwater is causing the bricks, which are really fragile, to erode very rapidly. There are very wide shifts in the temperature that are similarly robbing the masonry of its strength. And a lot of the walls uh, that were uncovered in the early part of the 20th century are crumbling. The ongoing problem of water has uh, long been an irritant to researchers. Because of the water table in the area, digging has always had challenges. But water is a very real threat to the very existence of the Mohenjo-Daro site. Because in addition to the salinity issue uh, and the water table, rainfall is also breaking apart the fragile brickwork. In late 2012, monsoons flooded Pakistan, and Mohenjo-Daro was severely impacted by those The stupa developed cracks, and the base of the citadel mound near the Great Bath had several structural failures. Yeah, it started to collapse in a couple of places. Uh, One conservation effort that has been attempted to save the city's ruins involved the use of a mud slurry that was applied to the delicate brickwork in the hopes that it would protect it. But when that fresh mud dried and fell away, it was often taking parts of the original structure with it. In some cases, modern bricks have been slotted into spaces where old ones have crumbled, creating a weird mishmash of structural strength that is simply not up to conservation standards. In recent years, it has even been suggested that the whole site should be reburied to protect it from the elements. After years of falling under the Pakistani government's jurisdiction, the conservation and care for Mohenjo-Daro is now in the hands of Sindh provincial authorities. And then under that stewardship, a committee has been established to address the technical needs of trying to preserve the site. Yeah, there was also an instance in 2014 where, as part of a cultural um, celebration, there were a lot of people there at the site, and it was really not good for it. So even though they were trying to celebrate the long history of it, the care was not taken to make sure that that celebration did not have ramifications of damage. 
and as we close out this look at Mahendra and its ongoing mysteries, I wanted to include another passage written by George F. Dales. And this time it's from an article written the year after the previous one we quoted. So this one is from 1965. And he wrote, quote, One of the most intriguing aspects of archaeological research is the constant ebb and flow of our knowledge between fact and fiction. There is an ever-present need to re-examine and re-evaluate the scattered bits of evidence with which we try to reconstruct the cultural framework of mankind's climb to the modern world. It is not uncommon to find that yesterday's fact is one of today's discarded theories, or that what is merely a calculated guess today may be a verified historical maxim tomorrow. And I wanted to include that because it's a good reminder that all of this is... uh, Based on the the knowledge that we have, but that knowledge can always change, particularly when you're dealing with very ancient things. Uh, which, again, as he put it, is part of the excitement of it. Yeah. But also sometimes the frustration of it. <laughs> do you also have listener mail for us? I do, and this is another ancient city-related one because it is about our um, our Ephesus episode. This is from our listener, Margaret, and she writes, Greetings and salutations, history buffs. I quite enjoyed your episode on Ephesus because I have personally been there and could imagine the sights while you spoke of them. My husband and I got quite lucky in timing our visit to Turkey in the summer of 2016. There were terrorist attacks in Istanbul two days before we landed, another one three days after we left, and two weeks after we got home, they had their military coup. The group we traveled with has understandably suspended service in that country, which is really unfortunate, both for the people who live there, because tourism augments their economy, and every tour guide we spoke to emphasized their belief that you cannot let the terrorists affect the way you live, or else they are winning, and, more selfishly, because it was my favorite stop in the Mediterranean. Our visit in Ephesus started with docking in the port of Kuzadasi and taking a bus up into the hills. We passed the original location of the town and marveled at how the river delta had accumulated enough sediment to move the coastline almost three miles. We disembarked at the ruins of the Basilica of St. John, where our tour guide led us led us to the edge of the hill and asked, can you see that column down there? That is all that remains of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And she talked a bit about the history and significance and then said, but then there was an earth, another earthquake and things changed. So people took the stones from the ruins and built the basilica. And she talked a little bit about the basilica and then said, but then there was another earthquake and things changed. So people took the stones from the ruins and built that mosque, which she indicated down on the other side of the hill. I love the continuity of it. Your research indicated that it is hard to be sure what really happened, but I quite liked our guide's version of events. I do too. That's quite charming. Uh, From there, we went to the house of the Virgin Mary and then on to Ephesus proper, which is amazing. It really is. You should keep it on your bucket list. Ironically, it had not been on mine. I was actually more excited to go to Istanbul and the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque, but Ephesus is really lovely and much more pleasant and impressive to ramble through than some other ruins I've visited, including the Parthenon and Pompeii. I'm not even kidding. Uh, And she offers to send us pictures, which of course I always love. But I really like that firsthand account of what it is like to go as a tourist to a place like this because we talk about them and how it's important to remember history and and engage with it when you can. Uh, but not everybody has the opportunity to travel everywhere and, and see all these great things. She seems very well-traveled and really has a grasp of the importance of visiting historical sites. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Margaret. That was 
awesome. Uh, if you would like to email us, you can do so at historypodcast at houseofworks.com. You can also find us online at mistinhistory.com, where you will find all of the shows that have ever existed of this podcast, including those way before Tracy and I were ever on the scene. Uh, but for the ones that Tracy and I worked on, you will also find some show notes included. And uh, we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com, and we'll all play in the history fun zone together. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 